We're still in the Psalms, and I hope that's an encouragement to you. I've been hearing a lot of people say they are encouraging, so I hope that that will continue as we stay in there for Lord knows how long. I'm not sure yet, but Psalm 57 today, Psalm 57. Open your Bibles there, page 605, if you're using a Bible provided underneath a chair. What do you do when you're caught in a storm? Not just any thunderstorm or strong storm, but a storm of destruction. What do you do when you're caught in a tornado? What do you do when you're caught in a hurricane? And it has been on the tops of a lot of our minds, at least it was, last week with a hurricane in Florida. Or was it two weeks ago? I forget exactly how long it was. Um, but uh, Fort Myers was hit and right where we used to live. Uh, and so the pictures there and the devastation there are places we've been to so many times and so many people that we know and friends in Florida uh, have, have had all their, all their things done away with. But as far as we know, no one has passed away that we knew personally. But what do you do in those moments when the hurricane is bearing down, it switched directions, you didn't think you had to leave, and now you, you can't get out? Or you, for whatever reason, you're unable to get out, and now you just have to hunker down, ride out the storm. What do you do in those moments? How, where do you take refuge? Now, most of us haven't lived in Florida and gone through hurricanes, a few of us have, but what do you do when you're out on Lake Michigan and a storm comes out of nowhere? And so you're a few miles offshore, and, and in comes the thunderclouds, and they move in quickly, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are rising, and your boat is about to be swamped because you're out there in one of those little fishing boats, you know, 12-foot or 14-foot or whatever it is. What do you do in that moment? When I was a child, well, I'll start with this story. Dale Lumsden had one of those moments just on his last vacation. And uh, decided to, to cross, uh, I don't even think it was Lake Michigan. I, what lake was it? St. Mary's River, crossing the river. And uh, it went out when it was really blowing and storming and uh, thought on the way back that he was about to get swamped and about to go under. Uh, terrifying moments. Have you been there? Uh, I'm not, I don't have a very sharp memory, so you have to bear with me. I don't remember a lot of things as a kid, but I do remember this. I don't remember how old I was, but we were on vacation in northern Wisconsin so kind of think of UP or northern Michigan, um, on a lake with my grandparents and with my family. And we went out on a, on a small boat together and in blew a storm. And we weren't that far from shore, but the, the wind and, and everything was pushing us the other way. And it was so bad. And my dad, uh, some of you know my dad, at that time he was probably, he was six foot one, probably 280 pounds, and he, he is strong. He could not, it was a rowboat, he could not row us back to shore. We're being pushed farther out with a bunch of kids. I don't know if any of us even have life jackets because we weren't expecting anything, you know. I'd have to see, my memory's fuzzy, so I'm not saying that no one thought about life jackets. Maybe we had them and I don't remember. But we were really afraid. So the lightning is cracking, the wind is blowing, the thunder is just tremendous, and we could not get to shore. But we got close enough, finally, that we, as you know, in some of these northern lakes, it's shallow enough that my dad could jump out of the boat and pull us in instead of rowing us in, and we all made it. But it was a real-life situation where we thought possibly people could drown. Have you been there? In those kinds of moments, in those storms, where do you turn for salvation, for deliverance? Where do you turn for refuge? Came to my mind, and we, we sing about it, right? Uh, when uh, who, who obeys the wind? Who's... Voice to the winds and waves obey. We just sing about it. 
And that's, that comes out of the, the disciples' experience on the Sea of Galilee where this, uh, I think, two and a half by seven mile uh, lake can have such terrible storms that even experienced fishermen are afraid for their lives. Same experience, same moments, where do we turn? Psalm 57 tells us, and before we dig in, let's pray together. Father, we need your help and guidance. Illuminate our, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to hear and to see and to understand the truth and be transformed, that you would be glorified, you'd be magnified in all things. We need your help today in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Psalm 57, follow along in your Bible as I read. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a victim of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. This is God's divine revelation to us. May we listen to it and be encouraged by it this morning. This is another congregational psalm given to the choir master, which means this is written for Christians to sing, and it only applies to Christians. God will provide no deliverance from your enemies if you are his enemy. If you are not a Christian here today, then in this story, you are not David needing protection from his enemies. You are the enemies of David because an enemy of the children of God is an enemy of God, which means this. In this story, if you're not a Christian, you are King Saul hunting down the people of God, trying to destroy the people of God, fighting against God himself. But the good news of the gospel is that God in his mercy and grace takes his enemies and changes them into his friends. He transforms them into his followers. He makes them his children, adopts them into his family, and provides all they need. Every one of us was born an enemy. And by God's grace, have been transformed into a child of God by the mercy of God through regeneration and repentance. And praise God for that. Those who were his enemies are now his children, and you can be his child. But if you're not his child, this psalm is not for you, even though in one sense it's about you. This is another mictum of David, a golden psalm like Psalm 56 we looked at a couple weeks ago and Psalm 58 that we'll look at in the future. Interesting note here, it's according to do not destroy, which as soon as you read the commentaries, you're going to see some differences of opinion. 
What does that mean according to do not destroy? There's a couple options, but the one I liked the most, whether it's right or not, doesn't matter, does it? It's just I liked it the most. Uh, it was that the fact that David, as he is fleeing from King Saul and hiding in caves, chose not to destroy Saul when he had the opportunity. Allowing God in his own timing to destroy Saul as God had promised. So David writes a psalm according to do not destroy, and I see it like Charles Spurgeon. So I'm going off of Spurgeon, you can't get wrong with that, can you? Um, he says there are four of these destroy not psalms, the 57th, 58th, 59th, and 75th. So we're going to have like three in a row here. In all of them, there is a distinct declaration of the destruction of the wicked and the reservation of, a preservation of the righteous. And they all have probably a reference to the overthrow of the Jews on account of their persecution of the great son of David. They will endure heavy chastisement, but concerning them, it is written in the divine decrees, destroy them not. So in a sense, we have the enemies of God's people, the enemies of David, and David chooses not to destroy because he's allowing the destruction of the enemies to be in God's hand in God's timing. Also, because God is the one who protects, God will protect his people. We do not destroy them, and they will not be allowed to destroy us. Do not destroy in the sense of two directions. So a lot to be said about that, and maybe in Psalm 58, we'll see it more clearly about how we are to respond to those enemies who threaten us. And uh, I don't want to get too much into it today. Um, it's not necessarily as clear in Psalm 57 as it will be in Psalm 58. Now, it does give us the specific setting of this psalm when he fled from Saul in the cave, and I believe very clearly it's 1 Samuel 24. Again, if you haven't read these Old Testament stories, you need to. David had fled many times from Saul, but only one mention of a time in the cave appears to fit what's going on here. Now, he was probably hiding out in caves many times, but there was one time specifically in 1 Samuel 24 where he's hiding from King Saul in a cave, and what does King Saul just happen to do? Come into his cave because he was looking for a place uh, to relieve himself is a nice way of putting it. And so King Saul comes into the cave and David and his men are, are way back in the cave. But there is King Saul in a most vulnerable position with very few men around him. And what are the men telling David to do? Kill him. God has given your enemy into your hands. Do not destroy. And yet... So, so this, is the, this is the situation, the setting of this psalm. Also, just pointing ahead, Psalm 56 is, like Psalm 56, this is a prayer and praise psalm. So some of these start feeling very familiar, even though, and, and, and similar in, in content, uh, but also in style. So this is like Psalm 56. It's a prayer and praise psalm. But this one does seem to have a difference because in, in verse 6, I do believe it's written after deliverance. There's definitely a prayer before deliverance and a praise after deliverance. At least that's my interpretation. And uh, if you disagree, please talk to me. And if you have good reasons, I will repent publicly. And, uh, but uh, wrestle with it and see what you think as we walk through this. So let's look at verses 1 through 4, David's pray, prayer. David's prayer. First thing we see about David's prayer is in verse one, he cries out to God and says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful. He cries out to God to be merciful. And this mercy has to do with salvation. Verse three, he will send from heaven and save me. So he's saying, be merciful and save me, save him from his enemy. He has an enemy. 
Someone who is trampling on him, verse three. So David cries out to God and he needs God's mercy. He repeats this plea, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful. He needs God to save him. He needs God to be merciful in saving him. We need to understand as we are in times of distress, in times of trial, in times of deadly peril, we can never demand salvation. We can only ask for it. We can't demand it. God, save me. You must save me. God, God, you, you, you have to save me. No, God, please save me. Be merciful and save me. Lord, we need your mercy. Salvation, whether it be spiritual or physical, any kind of salvation is always based on mercy because as sinners, none of us deserve it and none of us have earned it. None of us can demand salvation in any context. It's all on God's mercy. Now, praise God. God is abundantly merciful. But we can only ask for salvation in light of mercy. So he cries out to God for mercy, and and in that he prays to God most high, the only sovereign God. Verse two, I cry out to God most high. So this God he's asking for mercy is God most high, the God who fulfills his purpose for me. So David speaks specifically, he is praying to a particular God, not the unknown God, not a generic God, not anything that people anywhere, somewhere call a God. He is praying to the only God, God most high. And this God's will is being done. God most high accomplishes his purpose. And he is fulfilling his purpose for David. God most high is not dependent on mankind. God most high is not bound by man's will or by man's decisions. And we find some of the best verses on this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other, no other what? No other God. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's will is done. This most high God is the sovereign God. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, another very familiar verse. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The most high God is the God who accomplishes his purposes. And therefore, when we go to God for mercy, we know that God's mercy will be in conjunction with his will, with his purpose, with his decree, so that we can understand God is working something out. So this moment of of fear, this moment of terror, this moment where the storms are there, where the enemy is there, are moments that who has determined? God has determined. And because God has determined the fact that the enemy is there, that I'm under attack, that I'm under threat, he will also determine the ends, not just the beginning. Because all of it has a purpose. God has a plan, and he is working that out in every part of our lives. 
Are you encouraged? Is that great news when you are under threat? Is that great news when you're huddled in your house in Fort Myers, Florida, and 150-mile-an-hour winds are beating on it, and the water is rising outside on your, on your uh, glass patio so that you can take pictures of it 8 to 10 feet high while you're inside? You know, when your husband gets hit by a car, when you have to have surgery, and the doctors don't know what's going on, and they can't figure out what your problems are, why you're having so many troubles, is this encouraging? That God has ordained this moment, these terrifying, terrible circumstances, and he's accomplishing his purpose? Also, in this prayer, we find out that David has human enemies who are seeking to kill him. He has human enemies that are seeking to kill him. Verse 4, my soul is in the midst of lions. So we see this poetic language, lions, fiery beasts, teeth, and tongues. But these are analogous to men with spears. So these, these lions and fiery beasts, notice, these are children of man. These are humans. So he says, I'm in the midst of lions, fiery beasts, but I'm talking about people. And these fiery beasts, these lions, they have teeth that are spears and arrows. They have tongues that are sharp swords. What he's saying is, when I'm talking about lions with teeth, I'm talking about men with spears and arrows and swords. So his enemies are real human enemies with real human weapons who are really trying to put that sword, that spear, that arrow into him and into his life physically. It's so many times that we read the Psalms that we read them spiritually. Very good, very important, very true. Sometimes that's very much the point. But there are psalms like this one where the important part is not as much spiritual. It's first of all physical. Physical safety, physical enemies, real people trying to really end your life. Now we're not used to that in the United States of America. We don't live in Nigeria where Muslim terrorists are trying to destroy our village or coming in at night and killing people and raping women and dragging off the children. That doesn't happen in America, at least not yet. And so what we have to understand is in those moments, we have to understand the intent of the psalm is for those who have real physical enemies. Men who are trying to end their lives. And this is what's going on for David. Now, there are Christians around the world who have real human enemies who are trying to kill them. What do we do with that? What do we do when we have a real human enemy trying to end our lives? Well, the first thing you do is what David did, right? Now, don't just take the Psalms and separate them from the, narr the narrative. David fled. <laughs> he, he just, he's, so David, uh, King Saul is sending his men out to get David. In fact, he's in his home and D King Saul sends men to get David. And David works with his wife, conspires with Saul's own daughter to put a, a, a dummy in the bed, so to speak, so that he can flee and then she lies so he can flee. So there's real human things going on here. But in those moments when you're trying to be tricky, you're trying to avoid the police, the, the secret police, the, the bad police, all right? So I know in America, we're not used to thinking about the police being people who are not doing what's good. But maybe we're starting to awaken to the fact that that could actually be true, even in our land. But the idea is here, what do we do? And so they're fooling them. But at the same time, what's David doing? He's not just fleeing. He's not just hiding. He's not just being tricky. He's also... Trusting and praying and crying out to God in these moments. So he's in a cave. Why is he in a cave? Why is he not at home praying? 
Well, if God's going to protect me, I'll pray and he'll just protect me right here, won't he? How many times have you heard Christians say that? Like, like just trust God and, and don't worry. Just trust God and just stand on the railroad tracks. And if the train hits you, you know, God's will be done. <laughs> okay, that was sarcastic. You're not, I've been off for a couple of weeks. That was sarcasm. And I try to keep it down when I preach, but, but I don't mean that. But the idea is we both get off the tracks and we pray. We are wise and we pray and we trust God, but we also take evasive actions. And so why is David in a cave? Because he's hiding, he's fleeing, he's ready to fight, he's trying to protect his life. And yet here he is crying out to God for refuge. Notice he's crying out to God and praying to God because he is trusting in God alone. He is trusting in God alone. He says in verse one, for, so he says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for because in you my soul takes refuge. Because he is trusting in God alone. You say, wait a second, I thought you said he was fleeing, he was running, he was hiding. If he was trusting in God alone, he would just sit in home and trust God alone. No, he's fleeing and trusting in God. God alone. He's not trusting in the cave. He's not trusting in the fleeing. He's not trusting in his sword. He's trusting in God. He took a sling. He took five smooth stones and he went to slay the giant because he was trusting in the sling. And all God's people said, no. This time he said, no. All God's people said, no. He wasn't trusting in the sling. He wasn't trusting in the stone. He wasn't trusting in the strength of his right arm. He wasn't trusting in his aim. Who was he trusting in? God. But he did take a sling, and a stone, and he'd been practicing a long time. And he was good at it. He was a warrior. And yet, who does he trust in? So notice how these things work together. Don't just make it one or the other. You must keep all of God's revelation and all God's truth in mind as we face these things. He's trusting in God alone. The sovereign God is his only refuge. He's in a physical cave as a refuge, but it is the spiritual refuge that he needs the most. He needs to be under the shadow of God's wings. I've never seen more chicken stuff than in the last 12 months. And so just yesterday, I got to see a picture of a, of a mother hen, a chicken with, I don't know how many chicks, 10 chicks underneath their wings, under the shoulder of wings. I thought, oh, now I understand Psalm 57 better. I saw the picture. I've seen the chicks under the wings. All right, there are so many chicken things in the Bible. All right, it's amazing. I don't recommend everyone own chickens. I'm just saying, if you've seen that, you, you get a picture. This is what it is. The safety of the mother hen is, this, is the picture for what David is. He's trusting in the shadow of God's wings. Yet, as he's trusting in God, in the shadow of the wings, even the spiritual things, these storms of destruction are real. His life is in real danger. King Saul is really trying to kill him. And the cave wasn't refuge enough. Notice this. If you start to trust in, in, in weapons and, 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 and manners of warfare and in other refuges, if you start trying to trust in those things, you will find how fleeting that is because he's in a cave and he's perfectly safe, isn't he? How is Saul going to find him? There's hundreds of caves, I believe, in this area. Saul will never find him in a cave. He'll never find him, will he? Oh, he only happens to walk into the very one cave David is in. And in that moment, if you're saying, I'm safe, I'm fine, he'll never find me here, and he walks in. If your trust is in the cave, you're in trouble. But his trust was not in the cave. His trust was in the Lord. The Lord was his refuge as he took refuge in a, in a cave. 
You have to understand what this is talking about. Now, he is confident, not in the cave, but he is confident that his loving and faithful God will save him. He is confident. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He will put to shame my enemy, my human enemy. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. He's confident. And this confidence is based on God's promise and God's purpose. Remember in verse 2, God fulfills his purpose for me. If you can, you can leave a finger here and turn back to 1 Samuel 16. If not, you can just write it down and look at it later. 1 Samuel 16. How can David be so confident? He is confident that his loving and faithful God will save him because he is counting on and confident in God's promise and God's purpose. What had God told David he would do? 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God has removed King Saul. Not physically, but he's taken the throne away from him and is going to remove him finally some other time. But don't worry, there's another king I have chosen. Who's that king? Well, he's a Bethlehemite from the house of Jesse. Go down to verse, verses 10 through 13. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is he what? This is he, the king. This is the next king. Anoint him. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What did David know? that God had made him king, king of Israel. Was he king yet? Nope. You know what that means? That his time has not yet come. He can't die until he's king. Why is he so confident in God's salvation? Because he knows God's promise and he knows God's purpose. And yet knowing God's promise and God's purpose, what is he doing? He's praying. Why pray if you know God's promise and God's purpose? God said, I'll make king. He shouldn't be worried. And he doesn't need to pray because God has promised. But notice how this works. We pray in light of God's promise. We pray because of God's promise. We pray because we know God's purpose is for us. We pray what we know to be true, not because it makes it true, but because it encourages our hearts and reminds us of what is true and reminds God of what his promise is. Not because he's going to fail, but because we're going to fail in forgetting and in being fearful. And he's confident. Now notice this. How could God declare this to be so? How could God declare that David was going to be king if he was dependent upon man to bring it about? What if Saul is able to succeed? What if Saul kills David? Then what? Is it possible? 
Is it possible that God's promises will fail, that God's purposes will be overdone by the will of man? Can King Saul overthrow God's will, God's purpose, God's plan? No. Saul cannot kill David. It's guaranteed. Yet notice David still runs. He still hides. He still flees. He still prays. All those things are true because we don't do the foolishness of saying God's sovereign will and purpose are so much so that we can act like morons. Yes, I said it. I'll get reprimanded later, but I said it. That's, we don't do that. We don't stand on the railroad tracks and proclaim God's promises back to him about his safety and his protection. That's foolishness, and that's a misuse and abuse of God's sovereignty and the will of man. It's not easy, but we should know far better than to do that. Now, that's the prayer. Let's get to the praise. David's praise, verse 5 through 11. Verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here he is in his praise actually praying. This is a prayer of exaltation. Lord, be exalted. It's a prayer of exaltation. He prays for God's praise and glory to be abundantly magnified. He prays for God's praise and glory to be abundantly magnified. This is where he begins and this is where he ends. We have bookend sections on this praise. It's what he says in verse 5. It's what he says in verse 11. It's the same thing. The word exalted means to hold someone in high regard. Think or speak highly of. Praise. So we can say, be praised. Be glorified. Same thing. He is asking in prayer that God's glory extend above the heavens. Well, what's above the heavens? Be magnified above the heavens. What's above the heavens? Anybody know? Well, in the Bible, what is heavens referring to? Is it referring to space? Well, we have heaven and we have the heavens. What's the difference? One is the atmosphere around our world. That's the heaven. That's heaven. In a sense, the heaven. And then the heavens are space. Everything out there. Now, we want to exalt God's glory above everything that's out there. How can you exalt God's glory above the highest thing or the biggest thing, the longest out there? How can God's glory be exalted above the highest thing? Because as soon as you get to the highest thing and you exalt above that, guess what? That highest thing is not the highest thing. So have you ever been a poet? I'm not. But this is poetry. This is saying, may, God's, God's, may God be exalted above the highest thing ever imaginable, which means may God be exalted above all that is. That's what poetic language is. He's asking also that the glory of God cover the earth, be over all the earth, in every area, in every realm, in every sphere, in every nation, in every household, in every heart. May God's glory be recognized everywhere. May there be no square inch where God is not glorified. We got any work to do? Are there some square inches, some square feet, some square yards? I just switched it up. I guess yards and feet work. That works. Are there some towns? Are there some cities? Are there some nations? Are there some countries where God is not glorified? Are there, is there some space, left, some work left to be done? But that's our prayer. It's a prayer of praise. And he prays this because, verse 6, God has delivered him. Interesting. God has delivered him. His enemies had set a net. They had dug a pit. 
and he was greatly discouraged by these attacks. Saul was trying to trip him up and catch him in any way, and, it, and it's got to be hard to run for your life for months and years. His soul was bowed down. He was discouraged. But, oh, don't you love the butts of the Bible? But they have fallen into the pit themselves. God's salvation stories are some of the best stories. God's enemies, I mean, David's enemies and God's enemies, David's enemies get caught in their own trap. They said, they dug a pit, they set a snare, they, they've done those things, and guess what? They happen to get caught in their own trap. Isn't God amazing? They're trying to kill him, and then they fall into the pit they dug themselves. How dumb can you be? But that's what happens when you're an enemy of God. You do dumb things. One of my favorite stories of this is in the book of Esther. So read the book of Esther. It's not that long, but in Esther 7, verse 10, it says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. I think these gallows were 75 feet high. The enemies of God's people, led by Haman, who was trying to destroy the Jews, builds this gallows to kill his arch-Jewish enemy, Mordecai, and guess what happened? God just so happened to turn the whole story around, and who gets hanged on those gallows that Haman had built? Haman. Do you think that the God who does that can't protect you? Can't save your life? The same trap that your enemies, your physical enemies set for you, human enemies trying to kill you, cannot God deliver you and kill them with their own trap? Can God still do that today? Yes. Same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. But God had delivered him. This is, I believe, written after the fact. This is, has happened. They have been caught. But also, because of that, God has strengthened his courage. God has strengthened his courage. Upon seeing God's faithfulness in rescuing, rescuing you, is your heart steadfast? So what does he say in verse 7? They dug a pit, they fell in it to themselves. My heart is steadfast, O oh God, my heart is steadfast. The word firm, unmovable. When you see God's faithfulness in rescuing you, what does that do to your heart? What does that do to your strength? Are you not encouraged? Are you not confident in God's power and purpose as you see him following through and saving you? Do you realize this morning that nothing can touch you apart from him allowing it? Not one hair on your head. You know, you do this with kids a lot, right? He's touching me. She's looking at me. They're on my side of the car. I don't know if they do it anymore because everyone's got a bucket seat these days, but it used to be those bench seats, right? You know that your brother cannot touch you without God allowing it? I mean, he, he could not put his very finger just touching you without God allowing that? Not one hair of your head can fall without God determining that? So as you comb your hair and you see all the hair falling out, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. God determined that. How many hairs? They don't fall out. We have to remember this in light of potential persecution, physical persecution, threat of death, threat of jail, threat of losing our possessions, threat of all. We have to remember this because the time looks like it's coming where we have to live in light of these things. And we cannot be afraid of physical enemies that they can even touch us. Not, not, not hurt us, but even just touch me without God allowing it. So if God allows them to touch me, to put me in handcuffs, to throw me in jail, to take my life, it is all according to God's purpose. Because if he determined it not to happen, it could not happen. 
And that should give us confidence in the face of very dangerous enemies and very dangerous situations just like this. We must understand the import of these psalms because this has real-life implications. It's not just spiritual. It is very, very physical. It has physical applications, but it is spiritual in its interpretation, uh, physical in its interpretation. Now, when you see God save your life physically from a hurricane, from a tornado, from a storm on Lake Michigan, whatever it might be, when you see God save you in that way, what happens to your heart? Your heart is encouraged. It is firm. It is steadfast because God has me no matter what. He has me until he wants me there. The safest place to be is wherever God wants you, no matter how dangerous the place, because he will protect you better in the middle of Iran than you will laying in your bed in Owasso, Michigan, if you are in his will, if you're in the place that he wants you, because he protects your life, you don't protect yourself. Now, when this happens, this firm and confident and steadfast heart has something to do, doesn't it? When God does this, what's your response? Well, Father, we just want to gather together today around uh, this table to thank you for saving us through the hurricane. And all God's people said, amen. Is that what we do? Lord, you saved us through devastation. You protected our lives through the most dangerous. You, you kept us alive in the face of enemies with guns pointed at our heads. What do you do? Throw up a little prayer of thanks. We have a little Sunday prayer meeting where we all kind of, you know, wait for someone to pray. And well, someone else will pray. Oh, maybe I'll pray. What are we praising God for? Well, I don't know. I can't think of anything. I mean, notice what David's response is here. His heart is steadfast. Therefore, I will sing and make melody. And it's got an exclamation point because the interpreters are saying, he really means this. He's just like shouting this. I will sing and make melody. He commits to praising God. I will sing and make melody. He commits to praising God. In light of God's salvation, in light of the steadfastness and firmness of his confidence, I will praise God. And he gives four I wills in this section. He says, first, I will sing and make melody. So he's not just gonna shout it, he's gonna sing it melodically. That's the best thanks, melodic thanks. But notice that he calls himself to worship. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. He calls himself to wake up and sing. I'm going to sing, so wake up and sing. Be still, my soul, is a prayer and a praise to what? Your own soul. You are telling yourself, be still, my soul. Praise, my soul. You are preaching to yourself in that song. You're not saying to someone else, be still. You're saying, my soul, be still. My soul prays. This is what he's doing. He's, he's committing himself and he's preaching to himself to praise God, to wake up, get the instruments, get all the instruments. He says, I will awake the dawn. I'm gonna get up early. We're gonna get the whole band together and we can't start soon enough in praising God for my salvation. I mean, three instruments is not enough. We need the full drum set. We need 10 more guitars. We need all the brass all the woodwinds, even the woodwinds can come, all right? Uh, all, all the instruments, we're gonna bring them all. Awake, the dawn, and we're gonna start early and we're gonna give God glory and praise. I will, verse nine, give thanks to you. So he will praise early and loudly. 
He will proclaim publicly and proudly in front of the nations, in front of the peoples. David has no shame in dancing for joy before the Lord. He has no worry about what people will think. He's not worried if he sings too loud in church that someone's going to hear him be off tune or hear him sing the wrong word because they have their eyes closed when they should be looking at the words on the screen. So I hate to make a mistake, but if you sit around me, you're going to hear two or three or ten mistakes every song service, but I'm not worried about what you think at least most of the time. That's why I sit in the front. Hardly anybody can hear me. So if you want anybody to hear you from behind, there's a full front row that no one ever sits in. Come on up. There you don't have to worry what people think because I'm going to be loud. I'm going to praise because I don't care what you think. I have to praise God publicly and proudly in the congregation of God's people, but that's not the point here, is it? Is it the congregation? No, it's the peoples and the nations. This is public proclamation of praise in front of all the pagans, all the people who don't follow their God, doesn't follow his God. This is, this is where we go. This is how we, we go downtown. We go downtown. It's funnier when you watch a guest speaker struggle than when you struggle. And Tracy said, is there a problem? Should we fix that? I thought I had it. It's different when you go downtown onto a street corner and you proclaim proudly the thanksgiving of the Lord at the Owasso Farmer's Market. That's different than doing it here. It's different to proclaim at work or at school in front of your neighbors. It's different, but this is what we must be called to do. If God has saved us, will we not proclaim it loudly and proudly? Will we not be worried about what other people think if they think we're crazy, if they think we're just... This is what we're called to do. And when we understand the salvation that we have received, the spiritual salvation most importantly, but at times the physical salvation so many times, will we not loudly and proudly proclaim the praise of our great God? How much fun is it to come together and hear other people doing that? That's great. I love it. It's so much fun. So much fun to sit in the front because we get to hear all of you. If you sit in the back, it sounds almost like you're singing by yourself sometimes. But it was great today. I heard Fred singing loudly. And I remember Fred telling me that he didn't used to like to sing. He didn't sing much in church. But God has done a work in his heart over the years. And now he sings loud. And he sings on key. It's nice. And he messes up the words like I do. And that's even nicer. (laughs) He comes in early, comes in at the wrong time. Great. But he doesn't care. I love it. I got to hear Elaine today singing parts. I could hear her singing parts behind me, encouraging me. I can hear my kids sing sometimes. They sing so loud sometimes I can hear them over how loud I'm singing. I get to hear you sing, and it encourages my heart. So sing it out. Encourage others. There's people here who can't sing at all. They can't carry a tune at all, but they belt it out, and I love it. You say, who are they? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Some of them know who they are, and I've encouraged them that they are an encouragement to me, and they know they don't sing on key, but they are going to sing loudly because they cannot stop praising God. That's what we should do. Were you not thinking on Be Still My Soul? Were you not thinking on, I forget the other songs, there was a couple times. Were you not thinking, I wish I had a louder voice? Were you thinking that? I wish I could sing this melodically louder. Not, you know, kids when they like, sing it louder, like, ah, they just start screaming. No, melodically sing loud. I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. I wish I had 10,000 tongues. I wish I had the biggest lungs in the world so that I could sing louder. That should be our heart for what God has done for us. This is what David, he ends this psalm, and you can, it's hard to find in the psalms a more uh, energetic thanksgiving 
How do you praise? I know some of you don't like music. I know some of you don't care about singing. I know some of you, the, the thing you like less about, the least you like about church is the music. Like, can we just come, sing like a song or two, and have pastor preach for two hours? Some of you have told me that. Maybe not two hours, but you've come close. Some of you have said that. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. You don't have to like music, but you must love to praise God. You need to grow in that. You need to challenge yourself. You need to pray about that. You need to be understanding that this is a moment where we praise God, no matter whether you like music or not. It's not about musicality. It's not about whether we love these things. It's about our love for God and our desire to praise Him. How do you praise? So grow in your praise. But notice He praises God for who He is, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what he's praising God for. It's mentioned twice in this psalm. God will save him by his steadfast love and faithfulness, and he praises God for his steadfast love and faithfulness. And in poetic fashion, listen to the poetry. Your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. So think about how high the clouds are. God's steadfast love and faithfulness goes all the way to the clouds, but it goes beyond the clouds to all the heavens. It just grows and grows like a billowing cloud farther out. This is God's steadfast love and faithfulness. This is how great it is. And this is a familiar theme all throughout the Scripture, especially the Old Testament, and in the Psalms. Psalm 36, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 108, verse 4, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Are you getting the theme? Have we not sung this in many songs? This is a poetic way of saying God's steadfast love is covenantal love. And God's faithfulness is beyond anything we can imagine. It goes beyond all the parameters. And therefore, if we see that, and if we know that, and we praise that, then we end, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And it ends where he began this section of praise. Are you praying that? That God would be exalted above the heavens? That God's glory would be over all the earth? Ask our deacons, or I'm not sure it's deacons today, but whoever's serving the Lord's Supper, whoever you are, you know who you, know who you are, right? Come, come forward as we gather around the table. I just want to finish up. So I know there's a few blanks here. I'll finish up down here around the table. I said at the beginning that if you are not a Christian, then you are God's enemy. And there is no refuge for you from God's enemies because you are God's enemy. And so our call to you today is to trust in Jesus Christ. He is your only refuge. Trust in Jesus Christ. He's your only refuge. Your only refuge from your own sin, your own refuge from God's wrath, your, your only refuge from all the troubles and trials, whether they be physical or spiritual, God is your only refuge. Trust in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. After living a life of sinless perfection, he died on the cross for all the sins of all who trust in him. He paid the price. You can be born again. You can be saved. Trust in him. Receive his forgiveness and find him no longer your enemy but your friend, but more than that, your God, your Savior, your Lord, and he will transform your life. These things can be true. You can sing with us truthfully next Sunday all those great songs, and they can be true for you. And you I trust, and you I found my hope, past tense, and you I hope. I don't even know the words, but that can be true. Trust in Jesus Christ. And then Christian, did I not make it clear enough in the end? Praise God for his deliverance. 
praise God in the presence of unbelievers. This is a psalm calling us to public testimony, public praise. Now, if you can't do it here, you won't be able to do it out there. So I would say this, if you have a hard time praising God loudly or praising God without worrying about other people or worrying what other people think about you in church, you're going to really struggle out there. Here you're accepted. Here you're in. This is the, you fit in with us out there. So learn to be bold and brave and, and, and even, in, even in the song service because that will embolden you when you don't care in the right sense about what people think of you. And you'll be able to live unashamedly for Christ inside the church and outside in the community. And we need to be like that. And all of us struggle or have struggled in many different ways with this. And so, but this is where we need to be. Praise God for his deliverance. Praise God in the presence of unbelievers. And one of the ways that we testify, even in front of unbelievers, is what we're going to do right now. We're going to gather around the Lord's table, and we're going to publicly proclaim to anyone who's not a believer that we are believers. We're going to do that. Now, in our church, we ask that if you're not a Christian, don't participate. That's, that, that's, that's bad for you. The Bible says it brings judgment to you uh, from God. But secondly, if you haven't been publicly baptized, we ask you not to do that now. So the first step of, of, of public proclamation that you're a follower of Christ is baptism, followed by then taking the Lord's Supper. Now, I know some of you might be looking forward to baptism soon and thinking about that, but you need to hold off because we don't want to confuse anybody with someone who's not been baptized, public proclamation, at trying to proclaim it here in this context. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized as a believer, we invite you to participate with the members of this church. But if not, then to withstand and to not participate. We're going to take a moment to bow our heads and prepare our hearts individually as we prepare for the Lord's Supper.